All right, if you brought your Bibles uh, this morning, uh, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is part of the historical books of the Bible, so 1st and 2 Samuel, 1st, 2 Kings, 1st, 2 Chronicles. So 2 Samuel, not 1st, but 2 Samuel chapter uh, 11. I want to say um, one quick thing before we read this passage together. It's one of the longer readings, but it is a very interesting uh, reading from um, the Old Testament. It's, um, it's a story that if you grew up in the Christian faith, you're probably pretty well aware of, although you maybe lost some of the details along the way. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And um, j- just one quick note before we read together. I think um, when, when, when people come into contact with this book for the first time and they start reading uh, certain stories in the Bible, certain passages of the Bible, and they hear the Bible preach, I think sometimes it's kind of a shock to them, because I think a lot of people look at the Bible and they go, oh, this is a really spiritual book, and it, it talks about how to be really, really good people, and, and you know, of course, it speaks about Jesus and all of that, you know. Um, but I think sometimes when they read the Bible and they read some of these stories, they're pretty shocked by, by just what it says about certain people and how they lived and how they fell morally and uh, some of the stuff that the Bible says about murder and sex and theft and all of that. And, and, and here's the thing. I'll just say this. Um, this is a very realistic book, and I think this is why people are attracted to it. It, it. it deals realistically with who we are as human beings, and who we are as human beings is not always pretty. And that's why we need Jesus. And the Bible substantiates that. I mean, it talks about that over and over again. And we find one example of that here in the story of David and Bathsheba. David, of course, is a king of Israel. He was actually known as a man of God's own heart. But, boy, he, he fell, and he fell hard. Well, what happened? Let's read about that. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, Joab's his military commander, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites, an enemy of Israel, and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And now the trouble begins. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. 
When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah, the Hittite, also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, and she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Didn't I tell you about this book? Yeah, we got, we got lies, we got deceit, we have sex, we have pregnancy, we have murder, manipulation. Wow. It's all here. And you take a look at David and you say, man, how the mighty have fallen, right? What's the old saying? Uh, the bigger they are, or the taller they are, the harder they fall. Bam. You know, and I suppose we could say that about the mighty Goliath whom David fought earlier. Remember, kids, the Goliath, the big giant, he was over three meters tall. And nobody in Israel wanted to fight Goliath. They thought if we did, you know, we would surely die. And David said, as a young person, whether he's a boy or as a teenager, probably somewhere in there as a very, very young man, 
David said, I will fight against the mighty Goliath. And he did. And you remember what he said. He said, the battle is the Lord's. And down came Goliath, crashing. Must have been like a giant Douglas fir falling in the forest, you know, just this massive thud. How the mighty have fallen. The taller they are, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Now, that's generally true, and I think it's also generally true in a spiritual sense, in a moral sense, that the higher they are, the taller they are, the more righteous they are when they fall. That fall is, is very, very hard indeed. I want you to think about David and what the Bible says about David. The Bible says that uh, David was unusual. David was, from his very earliest of years, David was a morally upright guy, young man and as a man when he got older. David was righteous, and David trusted in his God. Again, when he fought against the mighty Goliath, David said with courage. Remember what he said? He said, the battle is the Lord's. It's not ours, it's not Israel's, it's not ultimately mine. The battle is the Lord's. Kids, remember he took that sling and he they had that rock in that sling, and he let that thing fly and went right into the head of Goliath, and down he came. David, a man of courage. David, a righteous king. David is a king who ruled justly when many pagan kings around him, and maybe um, many subsequent kings in the life of Israel, also were not ruling righteously. David, the one who took over the reins from King Saul. King Saul served himself. David served his people, and David ultimately served his God. Then if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I know it was a time when many of us were gone because it was a long weekend, but for those of you who were here, you remember that we looked at David and his kindness to Mephibosheth, the disabled man who David basically adopted as his own, and this Mephibosheth always had access to the king's table to eat with him and converse with him. It was a beautiful picture of what God does for us in Christ draws us to himself, adopts us as his own, gives us access to the table, to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and all the benefits that we have in Christ. All of this is reflected in David. And then finally you got David who is the principal, although not exclusive, but the principal author of the Psalter, known as God's songbook. David truly was, and more could be said about him, truly was, as the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. Yet, he was still a man, just a man, with the weaknesses and struggles of every man. And so David hit a low point, and he fell, and he fell hard. And you know, you know the story, because we just read it together. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the story. It's a long story. I'm not going to follow every detail in the story, but I'm going to touch on the major points for us to know. So how does the story begin? The story begins with a certain time of the year. It's the springtime. The story says when kings go out to war. Uh, notice it doesn't say armies go out to war. It says kings go out to war. Kings go out to battle because it was assumed that kings lead their men into battle. But not this time. Many times David did, but this time not. You say, well, why didn't he? And the reason is probably is found in the previous chapter, chapter 10, where there's a string of victories for the people of God, for the armies of Israel. And David probably became somewhat self-confident, self-assured. 
and figured, you know what, this time I don't need to go out. This time we're fighting a group called the Ammonites, and we're going to lay siege to a city called Rabbah. They don't need me there. I'm going to send Joab. He's a very capable military commander, and I'll send my troops in, and they, I'm not, I don't think they're going to have a problem. So David stays back this time, which is the beginning of his downfall. So David has extra time on his hands, and as the story goes, David is walking in the afternoon on his palace roof. Now, the palace roof, David's house, is higher than the other houses. He is the king after all, and David's looking down at the houses below, and what does he see? Oh, my, he sees a woman. And what's the woman doing? She's bathing. And maybe kids, they hear that, and they go, why you... Don't, don't you have a room in your house you can take a bath? You know, why are you doing it on the roof of a house? Well, if you go to the Middle East, you know that people do a lot of things in their houses. Sometimes they even sleep on the top of their houses because it gets hot there. So the question is, what, what, why was Bathsheba doing that? Was that just a custom at the time that people had their baths on their roofs? Or was it also perhaps uh, something where she was kind of naive? Or was it um, hmm, something to think about? Maybe she's trying to get the attention of the king. Don't know. Anyway, there she was. So David's watching her. He sees her, and um, he doesn't say to himself, yeah, I better get back into the house. He doesn't. It's a typical guy. He observes her for a while. And then he studies her for a while. And then, and I want you to notice in this story, there, there are many junctures in this story, kind of crossroads in this story, where David can, can choose either to go in this direction or this direction. The, the bad direction or the good direction. And, 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 and he's, he's drawn in. This is the nature of temptation. It's, it, it comes oftentimes in little increments. And so David sees her, David studies her, and then David asks about her. He calls somebody next to him, and then... And he asks about Bathsheba, and the person next to him says, uh, yeah, and it poses it in a question. It's like, yeah, isn't this, um, I, I, I think this is, yeah, I, I, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the, the wife of a man named Uriah the Hittite? So now David knows who she is. And not only does he know her name, but David... Um, Knows that she's married. Off limits, off limits. But then he goes to that extra step. Can't help himself. And he says, uh, bring her to me. Now, um, David probably knows that Bathsheba would have a hard time saying no to somebody like him because he's got prestige, he's got power, he's got position. The Bible also said David was a good-looking man. And there is something in, I mean, you got troubles with men here, but um, I think sometimes with, with women, um, power, attaching one, oneself to power is a big temptation and a position. I mean, think about it. The king is asking her to see him. Now, she does, maybe she knows what it's for. Maybe she doesn't. There's a lot of unsaid things here. But anyway, as we move on the story, she says, okay, so she comes to David, and the next thing you know, they have this tryst. Now, there, there's a, a section here in verse 4 where it says she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. So just um, I have to be careful with some things I say in the story, but basically I think what this is saying is that she was at a point 
where she was probably also most fertile and desirous. So at any rate, she comes to, to David, and they have this, uh, I'll just say this, they have this tryst. And uh, a little time later, she leaves David's presence. A little time later, she sends a note to David. And this is not something that you want to hear if you're not married and you just had a tryst. Um, I'm pregnant. And by the way, that, that's the, that, those are the only words that Bathsheba speaks in this whole chapter. Three words in the English language. It's only two words in the Hebrew language. But we get it. She says to David, I'm pregnant. And you think, what must have been racing through David's mind when he's thinking about this? Because he's like, oh my. Okay, the, the, the cat is out of the bag. What am I going to do now? You know, if you think about it, and I'll be, I'll be careful what I say here, but... Um, Really, a sex act can be performed in a very, very short amount of time, but the consequences can be long-lasting and huge. David's thinking now, okay, um, I'm king, I have my reputation, if this gets out, what is this going to do? What is it going to do to me? What is it going to do to my reputation? What is it going to mean for the kingship of Israel? What are the people going to think about this? Uh, you know, these things are racing through his mind, right? And, and it's going to change the course of his life. You know, my friends, um, I, I can think of four colleagues in the ministry right now who have fell in this regard. And it absolutely has ruined their lives. I mean, it wrecked, wrecked their lives. It's wrecked their ministries. That's it, that's done. Um, it wrecked their marriages. And um, in some cases, divorce has come about. And in, in, in certain cases where divorce did not come about, you can about imagine that it takes a wife a really, really long time to trust her husband after something like that, so you have that. So it wrecked their reputations, it wrecked their ministries, it wrecked their, it wrecked their marriages in some cases, and it wrecked their relationship with their children. And in a couple of cases, um, they spent time in prison, and one right now is serving in a federal prison in the States. Gentlemen, let me be clear, you know, if you read the book of Proverbs, you know what it says? It says, drink from your own cistern. And you know how that goes. Um, whether, whether you are a woman or a man, a husband or a wife, there is the temptation, sometimes grass is greener on the other side. Let me tell you something, it's not. It's not. You can have a fling, you might enjoy it, but the consequences are devastating. Don't go there. And I want, you, I want you to pray for me in that regard, not like I'm here to say, oh, I have a real temptation, but, but every pastor is prone because we're sinners like everyone. Pray for your pastor in many ways, but pray for your pastor in this regard and pray for yourself. And there's a reason why this is in the Bible. This is one of the reasons to make us check and say, you know, am I susceptible to this myself? Okay, more could be. I mean, that's a whole different sermon, right? Let's move on to the story. So... Um, David discovers that she's pregnant, and now, listen, David can do one of two things. David can fess up, or he can cover up. Really, 
So he can either fess up and just get it out there, get it out there to the public, right? And just, there it is, and just deal with the consequences. But he chooses the route of cover-up. And I want you to know something in this story. Um, there are three stages to this, this cover-up. And here's the first stage. And I'll explain this very simply. David's thinking to himself, okay, she's pregnant. Nobody else knows. Just Bathsheba and I know about this. So um, what I need to do is I, get, I need to get Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back to Bathsheba because he's a military man. He's serving in the military. And I, I, I need to get him off the military field and I need to get him back home so he can spend some time with his wife so they can have some intimacy together. She can announce to him that she's pregnant and Uriah will not think anything different. He'll just like, well, that's my kid and the matter will be solved. So what does David do? Here's the first stage. David calls Uriah to himself. And... Now again, Uriah doesn't know anything that's going on. He's serving on the field as a soldier. And so Uriah comes to David. And I want you to notice something. David doesn't say to Uriah, listen, basically I'm the commander-in-chief and you've been serving the field for a while. Why don't you go home and spend some time with your wife? Because I think he doesn't handle it that way because I think what he, David is, 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 is thinking that if he suddenly presents that to Uriah, all kinds of questions are going to go around in Uriah's mind like, well, why, why me? Why not others? And why is the king calling me to himself? And why is he out of the blue giving this time off so I can go home and spend some time at home with my wife? You know, I mean, so, so David doesn't want to raise suspicion. So I want you to notice in the story what David does. He, he engages, this is his strategy, and this shows you how deceptive he is. He engages a bit of straw, small talk with Uriah in, in so many words, probably something like this. So Uriah comes to him and says, Uriah, Uriah, how are you, my friend? How are you doing? And uh, yeah, how, how do you think Joab, the commander, is doing? He's a pretty capable commander, don't you think? I mean, he's not perfect, but he's a good, he's a good commander, and he's, he's, doing, he's doing well on the, on the field. And, and um, yeah, what, how do you think the people of Israel are doing? Doing pretty well. It's a pretty good time in our nation right now, don't you think? And uh, then also there is the matter of not only that, but also the war. How do you think the war is going? How is the war going? And then he probably says something to Uriah to the effect, you know, Uriah, um, you have contributed to this, to the success of Israel. So, you know what, why don't you, why don't you go home and why don't you go wash your feet? And that's, that's what we call a euphemism. It's kind of a soft way of, of saying, why don't you go home and, you know, spend some time with your wife. So, Next thing you know, Uriah leaves the presence of the king. And, and the reader's thinking at this point, well, he's gone home. And what David even does, if you look at the story, David even, again, shows you the deceit of David. He even sends a present after him. Sends a present. As if, you know, it's like what, what, a, what a, a president of a company would do, say, why don't you go home and spend a little time at home, and, and then sends a, sends a bottle of wine and some cheese and crackers, you know, enjoy yourself, right? And so, Uriah leaves the presence of the king and, well, I think he's going home. In fact, he doesn't go home. 
He stays within the environment of, of the palace of, of the king. And this is, what, this is what happens. He says in verse 10, when they, when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. In other words, it's Uriah who has a commitment. He's, he's a soldier, and he's got a duty as a soldier. And he's thinking about all these guys who are out in the field in these bad circumstances. And he says, and, and am I going to go and go to my wife and spend time with her? I'm not going to do that. This is, the, this, is an, this is an ironic twist in the Bible. The very person who should be righteous, David, is not. And the very person who should say, yeah, I'm going home, man. I get some R&R, some rest and relaxation. He doesn't because of his commitment. So David's stuck. So the second stage very quickly is this. David figures, well, you know what? I still got to get Uriah home. So we're going to have some time together, and we're going to eat and drink together, and I'm going to get this guy intoxicated. I'm going to get him loosened up, right? So his inhibitions are going down, and I'm going to send him home. I'm going to send him home. So this is exactly what happens. Is it? No, it's not. Uriah, again, stays on the steps of the palace. He will not go home and so we come to the third stage. And David says, I have, to, I have to do the hard thing. I need to take Uriah out. And this is where it shifts from adultery to murder. So what David does is he sends a note to Joab, his commander, basically saying, what I want you to do is uh, in this siege of Rabbah against the Ammonites, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines and I want him to be in the front lines of the, and in the very front of the siege so that there is this opportunity, a good percentage chance, that he will cut, be cut down, struck dead. Now, you've got to understand Joab, he's a ruthless man, if you read him about him in the Bible, and there's no questioning from Joab, like, ah, you know, what is this all about? I, I, I don't really agree. No, he follows the orders of his commander-in-chief. And he puts Uriah. Now, now here's the thing. That, that you, when you pay close attention to the story, you realize just how calculated David is. And just not only how calculated, but how dark he is. So he sends this message to Joab. But who is the messenger of the message? Uriah. It's like Uriah has his own death sentence. He doesn't realize that it's a death sentence. But David is so dark, he could have sent somebody else. But no, he sends it with Uriah to Joab. Job reads this, okay, this is what I got to do. So there's the battle, there's the siege, and what happens is that a number of people are killed, including Uriah. He's struck down. Archer's arrow. He's done. And so the matter is done. David could kind of wash his hands of this, and now he's, he's free. Nobody else needs to know about this. And Joab announces this to David by means of another messenger. He says, I want you to take this to David. And this is what we read in verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. 
Now, um, an indication is not clear, but there is somewhat of an indication from the story that the reason why Joab speaks in this way to David is because there's a bit of concern with him that David will think that the, the, the carrying out of this plan was sloppy in its execution. And that, that it was not int- the intent of David for so many individuals to die in addition to Uriah. So Joab is probably covering his tracks somewhat, brings this note to David through this messenger, and, and he's wondering, is, this, is David going to actually be angry with this, the execution of this plan? But notice David's response. This too is dark. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. What a pastor, isn't he? Isn't he a sweet man? Isn't, David is so concerned about Joab. This is the indication that he gives to this, to this messenger. Just tell Joab this, okay, you know, one falls as well as the other. There's always going to be collateral damage. You know how it goes in wartime. So encourage Joab, Joab because he might be discouraged. Then we come to the end of the story, and we read, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Some commentators will say, yeah, you wonder if she really grieved over her husband or not. Probably what was the case is that, probably with most women in the situation, there was a, a great amount of regret for what happened. It was, uh, it was um, a dark period for Bathsheba as well. And so what she... What she did, she grieved over him and she grieved over the situation. And then David once again. And you notice in the story, David is involved in great darkness, but somehow he always presents himself as the righteous person. And David goes ahead and in a righteous way, in the eyes of Israel, he marries the widow of a fallen soldier. So she takes time to grieve over her husband, then quickly he marries her, and of course they announce to Israel that she's pregnant, and the child is brought into the royal house. And it all seems so natural, and all seems so fine. And nobody knows any different. Nobody, right? It's just between David and Bathsheba. But the last thing we read is, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You can cover up and you can hide from a lot of things, but you can never hide from God. Just never hide from God. Now, um, that last sentence, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, I'm not going to deal with that now. I'm going to touch on that um, next week, Sunday. Because I want to I move ahead from this to actually the time after David himself dies and the epitaph or the final words that the Bible actually says about, about David. So, as we draw to a close here, um, again, I think we're left with the question, how can it be that a person so tall can fall so far and so hard? 
especially just, you know, if we put it into context, especially if we look just two chapters earlier about David's kindness to this disabled man, Mephibosheth, and gives him access to his table, adopts him basically as a son of his own and all of that. I mean, that, that's really a high point. That's a beautiful point of David. And then just, just like that, it's like flipping a coin, you know, you have heads and you flip it up in the air and it takes a matter of a few seconds, it comes down your hand. Now it's tails and that's the way it is with David. And you say, how can that be? Oh, it can be. Because the moral, at least one of the moral of the stories is this, that we are all capable, my friends. We are all capable of this. We are all capable of various forms of sexual immorality or adultery or deceit or lies or manipulation or cover-up or all the things that we find in the story. We can't just look at the story and just say, well, you know, that was, that was, that was David in the Old Testament times, and, but, but it, it's, it's probably different than myself. No, it's not. It's no different. It's no different. Every one of us is capable of doing this, of, just, of taking a God with whom we have been so close and over time pushing Him to the margins of our lives so that we commit the most insidious of sins, and experience the most catastrophic of falls, every one of us. There's, listen, there's a reason why the Bible says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall, you know? Listen, doesn't Jesus himself teaches us? If, A.V., if you can put up Matthew chapter 15 there for just a moment. Why don't you take a look? This is, this is a short text. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, this is Jesus. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. Now, don't go looking at that and say that's referring to somebody else. It's referring to every one of us. That's our heart. That's the natural tendency of our heart. And it's like, you know, if you, if you really want to do this, if you really want to take a look deep into the very center of your being, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find a lot of cobwebs and a lot of dust and a lot of dirt and a lot of filth. You know how you know sometimes? You ever get this where you wake up from a dream and all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's who I am. That's my subconscious. A couple of weeks ago, I, I, I had this dream that I actually killed a couple of people. I think, where did this come from? And I don't remember all what happened. All I realized is that I killed a couple of people and there was a woman across the street and she saw me. She ran into her house. I knew exactly what she was doing. She's calling 911. And I thought to myself, there's there this very palpable feel like, you know what, I just killed somebody or a few people. And now I have exactly about 30 minutes to 60 minutes of freedom left because I know what happens to individuals like myself. The police always find them in time and I will spend the, la the rest of my days with this kind of reputation and I will spend the rest of my days in prison. And I woke up from that and I thought, who am I? What? What is this all about? Listen, um, our dreams reveal our subconscious, but you don't even have to go through your dreams. You know who you are. We all know who we are, basically, in of ourselves. We have the very heart that Jesus is talking about here. This is why when you read stuff that is, that is said from the lips of Jesus, you just look at that and you go, he is, he is just right on. He's right on. So, all right. Um, brothers and sisters, I will leave, I'll leave you with this. If there's anything that this story teaches us as, as a reflection of many stories in the Bible, it's this that we basically, this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need Jesus. And 
you know, David in the Bible, David, in, in, when you look at the Old Testament, you have what are called three offices or three callings in the Old Testament. You have prophet, priest, and king. So you have prophets, and you have priests, and you have kings, all that you read about in the Old Testament. And they are all designed to be a reflection of the Jesus who is yet to come. The problem with this, and we're going to look at this more next week, the problem is when you look at prophets, priests, and kings, though they can be righteous at certain points, inevitably at certain points they reveal that all they are are human, sinful humans, dark humans with dark hearts, and they always, always disappoint us. This is the way of Bible saying, listen, human beings cannot save fellow human beings. This is why Jesus had to come into the world. Jesus had to come into the world as God in the flesh, the moral one, the sinless one, the law-abiding one, so that he may come to us, we who are fallen, we who are like David, and say, you know what? I've come as a remedy for your heart. I've come as a remedy for your sin. What's that remedy? The remedy is my life. I give my life for yours. So that you may be set free from the guilt and the power and the penalty of sin. That's good news. This story, in a sense, as you read it, as, you've, as, we've, as we follow along, is not really good news. It's sad news. But ultimately, it points us to the good news of Jesus, whom we all need. Our calling this morning is not to hide from our sin and cover up. It's to fess up. Right? Fess up to God. Come clean with Him. And when we do that, as the Bible said, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the good news, and it's available for all of us. That's why we need to draw near to Christ. Let's do that now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Lord, a heavy story, a dark story, a lurid story, but ultimately, Lord, a beautiful story because it points us in the direction of Jesus in whom alone we find light for our dark hearts and forgiveness for all of our sins. We thank you for sending Jesus into the world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. And we thank you now that you are even reigning over us. We praise you, we bless you, and we love you for all of what you have given us and what you promised to give all those who turn to you in repentance and faith. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.